You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Happy Resurrection Day to you all. Before we turn our attention to God's Word, I want to ask you to consider the following three questions. I I do believe these three questions have the potential to change your life. Now, I don't say that as just some creative hook. To begin the sermon. To get you sitting on the edge of your seat. I I really do make this claim. Because I believe. The following three questions. Have the potential to alter the way you view God. And life itself. Here are the three questions. First one. Is God. The happiest being there is. Is God the happiest being there is? By the word happy, I'm not talking about an emotional state of excitement or glee. I'm using the word happy as a synonym for delightful. Is there anyone in all of creation, in all of the world, as happy as God? Here's the second question. Did God create all people With a longing to be happy? In other words, is wanting to be happy in life wrong? Is our pursuit of happiness really just a result of the fall? Did God place in every single person an insatiable desire to be satisfied? Is the pursuit of pleasure wrong? Third and final question, is God most glorified in us when we find our happiness in Him? In other words, if you aren't happy in God, does He get the fullest glory He is due? What I want to do now, after posing those questions, is I want to seek to answer them from one verse of Scripture. If you will turn to Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. I want to answer these three questions from this single verse in the psalm. And after we've reflected on these three questions... I'm going to close our time this morning by turning to the New Testament and answering what does all of this have to do with the resurrection. I do remember it's Easter. So if you're wondering where is this going in regards to Jesus rising from the dead, at the end I want to show you how all of this, all of this prepares us for what took place Easter morning. If you have a Bible in front of you, I want to invite you to follow along now as I read Psalm 16. And I'm going to begin in verse 10. Church, this is God's holy, 
inspired and authoritative word. This is the psalm written by David. He closes this psalm with these words. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures evermore. In the context of this psalm, King David is, is declaring with confidence that he knows, he knows for certain that the Lord will not allow his death to bring an end to all of the promises God has made to him. Look back at verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 16. Listen to what David declared. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So here's the question. David looks at his life and says, God, you have been so good to me. You have blessed me. He uses this, this expression, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. But here's the question, when I die, is it all over? Were you just good to me in this life, but one day I'm going to take my last breath and my soul is going to remain in the place of the dead and my body is just going to rot in the grave? And David declares at the end of this psalm, no. Verse 10, my soul will not be abandoned and my body will not decay in the grave. Instead, the psalmist says, you have made known to me the path of life. And he says there's joy in his presence and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. So David says, oh, all the pleasures and the favor you've shown me will not come to an end when I take my last breath. Your pleasures are everlasting. Now, how can this single verse in Psalm 16 help us answer these three questions that I posed a minute ago. Well, notice, first of all, how, how God is described in Psalm 16, verse 11. According to David, it, it is God who has revealed to him the path of life. David didn't just discover it through meditation, through philosophy. God revealed to him this path of life and notice where does this path lead it leads not to heaven but to god himself david says you have made known to me the path of life and that path brings me to you and look closely and at the way in which god is described by David. He says, in your presence, in the presence of God is what? Fullness 
of joy. There is no lack. It is full. It is without any lack of joy. The atmosphere around God is one of joy. And listen, there are pleasures at His right hand. Pleasures that will never Here's the question for you this morning. Does David's description of God in Psalm 1611, does it match how you would describe God? If I was to ask you this morning, describe what God is like, I I believe the vast majority of you would declare He is holy. But would you neglect to say that He's happy? Infinitely, eternally happy. He's holy, but He's also happy. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the Lord as he closes out his letter, his first letter to Timothy. He ends with this doxology. And listen to what he says. He, Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now here this morning, all of us would probably have no problem declaring that the Lord is sovereign. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But when's the last time we said He's You know what that means? He's happy. He's satisfied. He's the fountain of all good. Is that how we view the Lord? Do you view God as the source of all pleasure? Or do you view Him as the cosmic killjoy? See, the way you and I answer that question will determine the manner in which we live our lives. That's why I asked you those three questions a minute ago. Because how we answer those questions and how we view God will determine the manner in which we live our lives. So let's go back to those questions now. Question one. Is God the happiest being there is? And according to Psalm 1611, the answer is yes. To be in His presence is the happiest place you could be. Listen to how God is described later on in the Psalms. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, happy, satisfied is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. That's the Lord inviting us, not just to believe in him, to intellectually assent to certain truths. The Lord says, taste and see that I'm good and happy is the person who takes refuge in Him. 
Or what about Psalm 37, 4? This is a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Does that sound like a cosmic killjoy? Delight yourself in the Lord. And He'll give you the desires of your heart. What about the second question? Did God create create us to be happy and to seek pleasure? I would imagine that if you were to poll the average person living in Seguin or in the surrounding community, you were to ask them, how they view Christianity. Here's what I think, whether they articulate this to the T, I think this is how they would view Christianity. Christianity is a pleasure-denying religion. I think most people believe that to be a Christian, you commit to giving up the pursuit of pleasure in hopes of pleasing a God who's holy yet unhappy, and He wants you to be holy and unhappy. I think that's how most people view Christianity. Question is, is that how we view it? Now, time does not permit for me to give countless examples from Scripture, but let me just say from Genesis to Revelation, here's what we see. God never calls us to action without the promise of reward. If God didn't want us to be happy, then why? Why does He promise to reward us in every command, in every action? And not only that, but the portrait we have of God is one of happiness and pleasure. And if we're created in His image, doesn't it make sense that we too would want to be pleasure seekers and happy. Listen to the way God motivates His people. He he motivates us to action through the promises of pleasure. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44. In this parable, He says, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a man, is like a treasure in a field in which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. Does that sound like Christ is a curmudgeon? Jesus, in one parable, says, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Like a man who comes to a field, and in that field is the greatest treasure we're selling everything for. And he sells everything with joy to get the treasure. Or what about later on, or earlier on in Matthew's gospel, the Beatitudes? 
How do they begin? Blessed, happy, satisfied are the disciples who do this. And listen to one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples. See, it's good to to see that this promise of pleasure isn't just that everything will go well. How will we suffer? How will we sacrifice? If there isn't a promise of reward. Jesus knows that. Listen to what he said. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Blessed are you. When because you belong to me, people say things that are false about you. Why would you do that? Why would you dare let people say things about you? Persecute you? Put you in jail? Take your life? Jesus doesn't say because that's what you're supposed to do. He says, blessed are you when they do that because your reward will be Now, this can maybe bring to your mind a question. A question that I think is a common misconception that people have about pursuing pleasure. You may be thinking, Josh, won't the pursuit of pleasure lead us to sin? Well, let me just begin by saying, pursuing pleasure can lead you to sin. Absolutely. But the pursuit of pleasure in itself is not sinful. See, sin occurs when we pursue pleasure apart from God. The pursuit of pleasure isn't sinful. It's when we pursue pleasure apart from God. See, sin is pursuing pleasure our own way apart from God and opposite of His design for our pleasure. Now, where do I get this idea and this definition many places we could turn listen to the prophet jeremiah speaking on god's behalf jeremiah chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 now think about what's going on this is one of the prophets god has sent prophets at this time in israel's history to his people because for a long time now they have been breaking the covenant Every way you could be disobedient, they have been disobedient. They've committed tons of sins. And God confronts them. But listen to what he says. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed Two evils. Really? All the ways God's people have sinned vertically and horizontally through idolatry and injustice, they've committed two evils? Yes. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And have made 
cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that hold no water. God says, oh man, I, I must address the sin of my people. Be, be appalled. Brace yourself for what I'm about to tell you my people have done. They've committed two evils. They've rejected me. The soul satisfying pleasure of the universe. They've forsaken the well that never runs dry and satisfies. And they've made their own little man-made wells that can't hold a thing. Does that change the way we view sin? Sin isn't us pursuing pleasure. Sin is us pursuing pleasure apart from God. That brings us now to the third question. Is God most glorified in us when we find our happiness in Him? The answer is absolutely. What kind of glory would God receive if we praised Him begrudgingly? What if we praised Him because the Lord says, I made you, I could kill you. How many of us a minute ago, when we were singing at the top of our lungs with our hands lifted, were we doing that because we had to? Or how many of us did that because we wanted to? It was an expression of the overflow of our heart. You are the fountain of living water. Think about the Psalms again. Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. How are we to come into the presence of God? What do we just hear from Psalm 1611? What's the presence of God like? It is the fullness of joy. So it is inappropriate to come into the presence of God with anything less than joy. Come into His presence and make a joyful noise all the earth. Serve the Lord Gladness. Doesn't say serve the Lord because He made you. He could take you out. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Or how surprising is this? In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 28, verses 45 through 47, if you remember what's happening at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God's people, the second generation, are about to go into the promised land. God has called Moses to prepare them. And one of the things they've been told is, if you do these things when you get into the land, there will be blessing in life. If you do these things, there will be curse and death. And listen to these shocking words from the Lord to His people. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. 
because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Hear this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Did you hear what the Lord just indicted His people? It wasn't, I gave you a list of things to do, you failed to do them. He said, even when you did them, you did not do them with joy. You did them begrudgingly. And what kind of glory do I get from that? Now we all know from just human examples of how obedience without joy is not pleasing. Imagine a parent for just a moment saying to their child who not only has not cleaned their room that day, but you wonder if they've ever cleaned their room. Their, their room is a huge disaster. And they say to little Johnny, Johnny, go clean your room. Johnny says, I don't want to clean my room. Johnny, I'm not asking. Clean your room. Clean your room. And he walks off. And all the while, you can just hear him down the hall. My parents are so mean, they make me clean my room. I ain't cleaning my room. My friend's parents don't make them clean their rooms. And while he's in there, you, you just hear him slamming things, shutting doors loudly. I hate cleaning my room. But he cleans it. And later on, it's dinner time, and Johnny sits down and eats his dinner, and now it's time for dessert. And the ice cream bowls get set out, and he doesn't get one. And he says, where's my ice cream? Johnny, you didn't obey. I did! I cleaned my room! cleaned your room, but you didn't obey. Because obedience is not about the act, it's about the posture of the heart. If that's true with parents, is that not true with the Lord? Does God get glory if we begrudgingly, well, I do this because you said I had to, because the Bible says it, and I know the Bible's true. we say, oh Lord, your words are life. They are the bread that satisfies. I do all that you ask me to do with joy. I personally grew up in church. And from the time I was a child to early adulthood, I heard many, many rich truths taught from the Bible that I am grateful for that were foundational. But unfortunately, it wasn't until adulthood that anyone told me, God is happy and He wants you to be happy in Him. And I wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago. Way longer than it was before someone says, do you know that in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy? 
There are pleasures at his right hand that are unending. Well, I had the privilege of having someone tell me that. It was a pastor and an author by the name of John Piper. In 1997, at a conference, I heard him for the first time open up scripture and declare some of these very same passages like Matthew 13, 44 was his text that morning. Still remember it like it was yesterday. And he's the one that pointed to Jeremiah 2. And from scripture, he made a case how God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That single sentence captures the ministry of John Piper and Desiring God, which had been so gracious to give us these books that we've been handing out the last few months. That single phrase, it impacted my Christianity. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Dr. Piper that day used an illustration I will never forget. And not too long ago, he spoke on this topic again and used the same illustration, just changed it a bit, a bit because the years have gone by. And the point of this illustration that was so powerful then, and I still think it's powerful today, it's meant to demonstrate how our desire for, for pleasure in something it doesn't make the act selfish. If I'm called to do something, any action, even to love, but I'm seeking pleasure, the question is, isn't that selfish? Should you love someone because it makes you happy? Is that really what Scripture teaches us? Doesn't just Scripture teach you? You should just love because it's he gave this illustration so helpful. He says, imagine on my 50th wedding anniversary that I buy 50 roses for my wife, Noel. He says, they, let's imagine they cost around $200. He says, I hold this huge bundle of roses behind my back and instead of walking in my front door, I ring the doorbell, which is unusual. She comes to the door and looks puzzled. From behind my back, I hand out the flowers. And she says, and I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're so beautiful. Why did you go to such an expense? Suppose I said, it's my duty. I read it in a book. This is what husbands do. I'm guessing by your laughter that's the wrong answer. Why is that the wrong answer? John says, let me show you why that's the wrong answer. Rewind. Ding dong. Door opens. Flowers come out. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny. 
They're beautiful. Why did you go to such an expense? I couldn't help myself. In fact, I've got a plan for this evening. Go, go, go put on something really nice because we're going out. Because there's nothing I would rather do than spend the evening with you. You make me very happy. Do you think at that moment she would say, it would make you happy? You're always thinking about what makes you happy. What about me, your wife? Do you think she'd say that when I said this evening spent with you as an all-satisfying person in my life tonight would make me happy? Do you think she would say all you ever think about is what makes you happy? No. Why? Because John writes, she is glorified when I'm satisfied in her. He says, you know this. You know this from your own experience. What you find is that she or he whom you find pleasure, that makes them the treasure. And then he ends. So is true with God is not glorified when we do things and we say, well, it was my duty. I was supposed to. But when we say, oh, Lord, you bring me great pleasure. Do you know what happens? We, with our lives, say that he's the greatest treasure. You get it now? <laughs> Until we believe God is happy and He wants us to be happy in Him, we will never understand what it means to worship Him. Like I said earlier, I'll say it again. This single truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, it has revolutionized my understanding of who God is and it has transformed my relationship with the Lord. My prayer is that it will do the same for you. Now here's the question. What does this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the answer comes in Luke's sequel to the book of the Gospel of Luke in Acts We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke as a church. And Luke wrote a sequel to the Gospel of Luke called Acts. And in Acts, if you recall what happened, in the very first few verses we're told that after Jesus rose from the dead, that He appeared to His disciples and He gave them several commandments. And one of the things He told them is, do not depart and begin your public ministry in Jerusalem until the Spirit that was promised by the Father is given. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke records for us what happened on that day when the Spirit was given. And after the Spirit was given, Peter, in Jerusalem because he's empowered by the Spirit, stands up and he preaches a sermon. 
Luke records it. It begins in verse 14 and goes all the way through verse 36. I want to read verses 22 through 32. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus and Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then listen to what he does. For David said, and now he quotes Psalm 16 Verses 8 through 11. The day of Pentecost, Peter gets to declare to Jerusalem, this Jesus whom you crucified, He's the risen Lord. How can I prove it to you? Turn to Psalm 16 and let me recite verses 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I should not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then what does he do? He gives an explanation. Brothers, May I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor his flesh will see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are His witnesses. Did you see what just took place? Peter wants to declare that this Jesus who was crucified was crucified according to the plan of God and He was raised according to the plan of God. And he could have turned anywhere in the Old Testament. He says, Psalm 16 will do. <laughs> and he quotes these verses. Now, what do we take away? Or, or what, what do we understand from, from what Peter just said? To quote one commentator, and then I just want to give two points of application as we close. He says, the New Testament writers in this case being Luke, bring this passage, Psalm 16, forward, knowing what the Spirit of God had intended when David wrote it. The apostles made it clear that these words written by David could only apply to David in the general sense of a future resurrection. For his body had been in the grave for thousands of years, for a thousand years. But they apply it to the Lord in the precise and fullest sense. For by the resurrection, he did not see the effects of being in the grave that were true of every human being. Because, Jesus, because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, 
which was the first fruits of all who fall asleep, it guaranteed that David and of all the saints that we would be raised from the dead. Therefore, God has not abandoned David or any of his saints to the grave, but he will raise them up triumphantly. Now, what do we take away from this? What difference should all of this make? Well, we must read Psalm 16, verse 11, in light of the resurrection. And when we do, this is what we see. Jesus did what no one else in history could do. Did you hear the point Peter just made? David spoke those words, but he knew that he wasn't the fullness of those words because last time I checked, David's been in the grave for a thousand years. So God, Jesus, did what no other saint had done or could ever do. Jesus was able to do what no one else had done or could do when he rose from the dead. Jesus overcame the grave. He defeated death. And he alone has brought forgiveness for all of our sins. That's the point Peter was making on that day. But he points back to Psalm 16 verse 11. And then he points to what just happened with Jesus. He says, do you realize what this means that Jesus is not in the tomb? It means that Jesus was able to do what no one else could do. And because of that, here's the second thing. Jesus rose so that the promises of Psalm 1611 would be ours for all eternity. Not only did Jesus do what no one else could do, because He did what He did, we, we can claim the promises of Psalm 1611. Listen, the message of Christianity is this. God the Father sent Jesus His Son to die in our place and then rise from the dead for the purpose of reconciling us to God, the God who wants to satisfy us. Let's be clear on this Easter Sunday what the gospel is and what it isn't. The message of Christianity is that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to die in our place, to rise from the dead, so that we could be reconciled to the God who wants to satisfy us forever. But there's more. Jesus died and he rose from the dead so that we could be freed from death in order to experience all the pleasures of God for eternity. That's the good news that we're celebrating this morning. That our God is not just alive, but the reason he died and the reason he rose is so that we would know forever that there is fullness of joy in his presence. Pleasures in his right hand forever. So, 
how should you and I respond? Two responses we see in Acts 2. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, realize that your sin isn't just a breaking of God's commandment. It's a rejecting of the very God who created you to be satisfied in Him. And that you deserve the judgment due to doing that. But instead of giving you what you deserve, all of His judgment fell on Jesus. And if you receive what Jesus did in your place, you'll be forgiven. And you too can say, I will experience this forever. Here's the second thing. It's what the apostles did. What did they do? They went and were willing to give up their lives. For the sake of the reward. Can I just clear something up this morning. That I think. This, this truth. That we've been thinking about this morning helps. The disciples didn't lay down their life. And willing to be martyred. Just because they believed the resurrection was true. There's a lot of things I know tr- that are true. I'm not laying down my life for it. I don't, bl- I, I don't doubt that a whole bunch of men gathered together in Independence Hall and wrote down the words of the Constitution. There are other truths that I know that I, I, I may or may not be willing to lay down my life for. See, they didn't lay down their life just simply because they knew it was true. They laid down their life because they knew it was worth. Jesus isn't worth it. He's just the one who's going to get you into heaven. But all the while, you just have to obey him with kind of a, oh, I'll do it. And you will never, and I will never, be able to live for him as I ought. This truth matters this morning. It matters that we believe that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And nothing makes that clearer than the empty tomb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are all satisfying. You are the fountain of living water. Forgive us. Forgive us for building our own broken wells. Thinking that those wells are going to produce what satisfies our souls. Lord, may we all 
be convinced as we leave here this morning that you are the all-satisfying Savior. Worth living for, dying for, giving everything up for. Lord, help us to understand what it means to find pleasure in you. I know this may be new to many here this morning to hear it said in such stark terms. But Lord, I pray that as we reflect on this truth, Lord, joy will just begin to rise in our heart. And the response of what we've heard this morning will be worship. Now as we end our service, Lord, we, we want to come into your presence with singing. We want to be glad and joyful as we make much of who you are and what you've done for us. So may you be magnified as we now lift up our voices and as we leave here and we go about our days. May everything we do be for our satisfaction in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.